welcome to Cryptic Chronicles, a show dedicated to exploring all the unexplained mysteries of existence in this ineffable universe we call home, as well as everything dark, weird, or cryptic in the world. Today on the show, we're going to go into part four of our chronicles concerning the enigmatic and often contradictory Nephilim. We're going to dive into the myth and legends of some other ancient cultures and see if we can find anything that could be attributed to the Nephilim or their original inspiration, the Mesopotamian gods. Honestly, I can't wait to start delving into the Atlantis myth stuff and all the connections found there, but we got to be patient. We'll get there, I promise. It turned out that the Nephilim myth comparable to myths from ancient cultures around the world were far more sprawling and massive than I first assumed. So we still got a lot more to cover when comparing other ancient cultures mythologies to Nephilim lore. But don't worry, I'm not going to get clerical on the topic. However, let's just say that this is going to take longer than I initially planned. Anyway. Blah, blah, blah. Let's get into it, shall we? So buckle up, because it's time to get weird. I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Okay, we left off in the last episode talking about the Watchers and Nephilim from pre-Cataclysm Earth, the Egyptians, and we were going over some of the lore that surrounds ancient cultures that could possibly have something to do with the Nephilim. And in much of my research, there are a lot of people who have strong polarized points of view concerning the Nephilim and the Watchers. It's very black and white from a lot of perspectives, and as we know on Cryptic Chronicles, things are rarely what they appear at face value. And as I've said in part one of this series, the Nephilim are basically the heroes of renown, such as Hercules from Greek mythology and all similar characters from other cultures' mythologies. They lived longer than normal people, were stronger, probably possessed abilities like the ancients would sum up as magic, and all around were more like our modern superhero pantheons than humans. The Nephilim were also larger than average people, which is objectively documented pretty consistently between cultures that never interacted with one another. I also am aware of the unexplainable large pieces of structure out there in ancient architecture and masonry, like those giant steps in the east and whatnot, and a lot of these structures are associated with Nephilim-type entities. It's important to remember that the Nephilim were more than one generation and more than one faction. And in a, in a lot of cases, as the Nephilim generations continued down the line, they would slowly get weaker as they left the purer blood from their Watcher ancestors. And as we'll go into later, there might have been some genetic tinkering going down. Overall, I 
think that they were more superhuman than giants. But I'm not throwing out the literal giant stuff either for you out there who believe that point of view. And as you'll see later, there is some very fascinating viewpoints on the Nephilim counter to everything I've said so far. Because according to some, the Nephilim are actually still around till this day. The circle that believes the Nephilim were all literal giants say that that's what explains the pyramids and other unbelievable structures of ancient times that seem impossible for, as modern people would call, primitive humans. Though I think that many people underestimate the genius of humanity, which is pretty self-evident throughout history. We just need the right environment and the right circumstances, and humans can perform unbelievable wonders. We underestimate ourselves, but that's easy to do from a mainstream viewpoint. Anyway, let's look into Nephilim lore found in cultures around the world a little bit deeper. When the Watchers came to Earth, it was not an uninhabited planet. And as I've already gone over in past episodes, we were kind of forced into having an unnatural advancement because before the fall, humanity had an advanced and unprecedented level of technology and cultural sophistication under the rule of the Nephilim. Now, was humanity ready for that? Well, according to many perspectives, absolutely not. These people say that humanity didn't have time to naturally mature as a species. And when you give means of destructive power to an immature species, the Watchers didn't really have to push too hard for us to disregard morality. And if the Sages are to be believed, any civilization without morality or disregards morality is doomed to fall. And though I somewhat disagree with this point of view, I do see its merit to an extent. Because morality is subjective and changes based off of our advancement. Though there is an underlying current of morality that never changes, the old saying, the golden rule, do unto others what you would have done unto you. That never changes. My main point is that humans were naive and easy to manipulate, with the Watchers and Nephilim easily swaying the majority whichever way they pleased. In Greek and Roman mythology, the Nephilim were great heroes worthy of praise. The children of the Nephilim were the Aluid, and supposedly were responsible for creating the pyramids and all other ancient structures we can't really explain. With some sources claiming that the Nephilim used their talents to destroy evil supernatural creatures. They might have worked towards keeping the peace between other creatures such as vampires, fairies, demons, and deities all kind of balanced or something. And yeah, you see, uh, Nephilim lore can get really diverse with these heroes of myth slaying monsters and becoming kings like, uh, like Beowulf. If you're familiar with the story of Beowulf, if there was ever a problem with some monsters, you called your local Nephilim and people were proud to be associated with them, with many rulers claiming blood heritage to Nephilim. And keep that in mind, because that's going to pop up again later. But many of these ancient great people or rulers would claim to be descended from the heroes of old. 
like Alexander the Great claimed to be descended from Hercules. In fact, many Greek rulers claimed to be descended from the gods. And then we have Gilgamesh, who is one of the, whose story, I mean, is one of the most well-preserved of the ancient world. And straight up comes from Mesopotamia at the dawn of civilization. Gilgamesh was openly half god, half human, a Nephilim. And like many Nephilim, was granted kingship. And his city's name was Uruk, but he was kind of a dick to the point that his subjects, God, the gods, all kind of had their attention brought over to Gilgamesh from all the pleas of his people, with those he ruled over pretty much saying that he was an insane Nephilim king. But the gods had a kind of a plan, I guess. They created an entity known as Enkidu, who was part human and part beast, which, like much demigod lore, could be translated as genetic experimentation. But more on that later. Uh, Enkidu's story starts in the forest, and it begins when somebody passing through tells him a disturbing tale. Apparently, in Gilgamesh's kingdom, there was a disturbing ritual. When couples were wed, Gilgamesh had the right to spend the evening with the new bride before her husband was able to, if you know what I mean. By law, Gilgamesh got to have new brides before the husband, which by all points of view is pretty messed up. You gotta be a super dick and utterly arrogant to do that kind of bullshit. So at the start of the tale, Gilgamesh is basically your stereotypical Nephilim evil tyrant overlord, and probably pretty in line with the Hebrew view of them. But that did not fly with Enkidu, so he headed to Uruk to defend a woman who was going to be forced to bang Gilgamesh. The Nephilim and Enkidu fought, and Gilgamesh won, but the two ended up becoming friends. And it's this friendship with Enkidu that over time changes Gilgamesh to stop being a Nephilim asshole and to more so become a hero. They'd go on to have many adventures together, but eventually pissed off the gods to the point that it was decreed that one of them had to die. Enkidu fell ill and eventually passed away leaving Gilgamesh to continue his adventures alone, though less bloodthirsty and evil than he was before. Though Gilgamesh as a Nephilim was not immortal like the gods or the Watchers, and his entire quest pretty much revolves around him trying to gain immortality. In the end, he fails, but returns home to rule Uruk as a wiser and greater king. The Gilgamesh tale is important because it's one of the clearest pictures we have concerning the chronicles of uh, the life of one of the Nephilim. But let's cross over into some Viking lore that might be analogous to the Nephilim. Like I said in the last episode, the Vikings had a word for their gods similar to the Assyrians, the Aesir. And there's actually, oddly, a lot of connections to these ancient Mesopotamian civilizations and the languages in Europe. 
such as the bizarre linguistic connections of the Celtic people to the Semite people. Despite what we like to think, at some point in history, a lot of us on the planet were connected somehow. Otherwise, these linguistic families would not have any connection to one another. But in Viking lore, there's plenty of stuff to go over that could be uh, Nephilim related. We come across very interesting accounts concerning giants and demigods in Viking mythology. But the ancient religion of the Northern Europeans was originally divided into two groups of gods. One called the Aesir, the ones that we're familiar with. And when uh, the West was exploring the past of the Vikings, kind of chose to push to the forefront because we were more familiar with them in the way that they were presented. They were more similar to the myth that we were familiar with. But there is also always the other half of the gods, the Vanir, who don't get nearly as much coverage, but were just as important as the Acer pantheon. When the two pantheons did meet, however, there was conflict. They worked it out though and eventually united against both of their common enemy, the giants. Vanir gods, such as Freyr, were fertility gods who were associated with ships and pigs. This is important because the Vanir stories represent those who arrived in Europe via the sea ships, those of Danish descent, the Swedes, the Frisians, the Jutes or Anglos, for example. They were not native to the land, but arrived from elsewhere. A thing we're going to come across again and again because in a lot of these tales, people are fleeing from a cataclysm and they're the remnants of a lost advanced civilization. The theme of these refugees coming and finding new lands to settle is pretty present in more myth than you believe. And the Aesir themselves were wanderers. They arrived over land, the Saxons and Scythians or gods. Although the Norse did have the notion of an overall god of everything, whom they referred to as Alfador. And that probably sounds familiar because Odin is often referred to as Alfador. It means Allfather. But this actually isn't always the case in Norse mythology. There's actually many different versions and as I've already said, the one that we have is very biased. And the name has also been used in a way that shows that the Norse had an idea of a deity superior to Odin. Uncreated and eternal. But this superior deity is a mystery and they had virtually no mythology about him or it. I mean, however, after Ragnarok and the end of time, this entity is destined to step up and provide a new, perfected, heaven and earth, as well as all planes of existence, with Midgard just being the human one. So for all intents and purposes, they called their supreme god Odin. Odin could be considered to be a, a lesser limited form that is an avatar in a way, because in order to experience reality in a way that can be comprehended in a subjective manner, there has to be limitations on that consciousness. 
which is interesting because the name Odin is to be compared to the name Adon, the very name that the Israelites used for God at the time of their Assyrian exile, and might be more familiar as Adonai, at least linguistically, and if there's linguistic connections, there's some connections somewhere in history, though not necessarily directly, don't get me wrong, but to the Israelites, Adon means Lord, and they used it because the Almighty's actual name was considered by them to be ineffable. But that depends on the period of Hebrew history because, as I've already stated, there is much more to them than what the mainstream herd may think. The similarities between the Viking creation myth and Hebrew creation myth is also undeniable with many verses from Genesis almost word for word saying the same things, just differently. I could go on into far more detail on the similarities, but this is about Nephilim and not how similar global mythology is. The Hebrew creation myth mirrors the earlier creation myths of the first human civilizations as well, so this isn't any big deal. Similar mythologies is common. Um, between cultures, I mean. But they got basically everything. They got the tree of life, well of knowledge of good and evil, the flood, and everything, even giants. Just as it is in the Hebrew scriptures, the Norse giants were not completely wiped out in the flood. Nephilim, a scriptural term often translated as giants, is once again translated differently as shades or ghosts and is very plausibly the origin of the Nordic term Niflheim, which is the name for the giant homeland and, in a way, a realm of the dead, though it's not Helheim or Valhalla. The universal term for the land of the human dead was Hela. This was the equivalent of the Hebrew Sheol and a repository for the bulk of mankind's dead the heroic dead always went to Valhalla, the brave and whatnot, people with honor. However, whenever a giant was dispatched, it would go to Niflheim. I didn't find any linguistic connections of Niflheim to Nephilim, but they definitely sound very similar. Though, as I already said in episode one, the most accurate way to translate the word Nephilim is the fallen ones but spelled in a way that in Hebrew very specifically does not mean fallen as in corrupted or fallen from heaven, but those who died in noble battle. Which is weird and doesn't make sense, but it's objectively not a derogatory term. Translating the word Nephilim as shades or ghosts is unique in Viking lore. I mean, Nif ugh, Niflheim. But these giants being translated as shades or ghosts is very unique. Though, no matter how hard I looked, I could not find where this information came from. I can legit read and write ancient Hebrew, but ancient Norse I cannot, so I cannot verify by looking at source material. Though, as a major in linguistic anthropology, Elder Futhark is pretty awesome, and you should go check those runes out because they look really cool too. Definitely a language I'd like to study more. 
and we will get right back to the vikings in one moment for now i gotta take a quick break you're listening to cryptic chronicles listening to Cryptic Chronicles. The show is sponsored by Blueberry, and if you're interested in starting your own podcast, use our link. Go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click on the Blueberry link on the homepage. By doing so, you'll be helping the show. Blueberry is optimized for iTunes as well as all podcast hubs. You won't have to worry about expensive contracts or fees. In fact, you won't have to leave your own website. You'll have your own RSS feed and no third-party site. Try it for a month free by going through Cryptic Chronicles. Also, if you're a fan of cryptic content, please support the show on Patreon. By giving just $1 a month, you can really assist us in posting more content frequently. You'll also have access to bonus ad-free episodes of the show and the Discord channel. To keep up with all Cryptic Chronicles content, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and of course, Facebook. Give the Facebook page a like and join the Cryptic Chronicles group. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for supporting the show, but most of all, thanks for listening. So when I was on my break, I was looking at emails from you guys, drinking some coffee, and I don't want any more angry emails. I know that's inevitable, but I just don't want to be misunderstood. So I thought I, I just clarify some things real quick. I think I got to be a little bit more clear because sometimes when I'm presenting information, I just kind of like go off in my head and uh, need to be more specific about things. Because what I just said could turn into some angry emails. And I don't, they're really kind of unjustified because you just misunderstand what I'm saying. This is fringe knowledge. It's just weird and cryptic lore stuff that doesn't really get looked at from common perspective. And if these people are really so offended by alternative information, why are they listening? Like, just turn it off and go away. It's that easy. It's really easy to just do that. Anyway, I'm going to clarify this. So I'm not saying that Odin is Adonai from Hebrew lore, just that linguistically they are similar. And there may have been some interaction with the peoples that would later evolve into the Norse and Hebrews during some prehistory times that aren't documented. And that's just me theorizing off of what I know about linguistic anthropology. So from now on, I'll be more specific and pointing out when I'm saying things that shouldn't be taken as fact. Because a minority of you misunderstand me sometimes, and I guess I need to make more disclaimers. Though, I think you, dear listener, yes, you, I'm talking to you. I think you're intelligent enough. I don't have to spell out anything for you. 
This is just for the tiny few who like email me bullshit. So this is just a little bit of clarity for those people. And to just cross my T's and dot my I's, if you know what I mean. Also, the reason that the modern view of the Viking religion isn't entirely accurate is the same reason the view we have on the Celtic people isn't entirely accurate. This is because much of what came before the Christianization of Europe was suppressed, absorbed, or outright forgotten. You'll find many Norse and Celtic traditions in Christianity, including Christmas, so later down in history, when the West finally became interested in the ancient past and cared to document it, it was also these hardcore Christian people who did so. And it's really only in modern times that these biased outlooks and mistranslations are being corrected. Now, it's not to say it isn't useful, but I mean, in medieval times up all the way up until like the, I think it was around the Renaissance, all the paintings of the Egyptians have them looking very European, which is hilarious. So, so much knowledge was lost. And uh, it's definitely a glimpse of what came before, but just not entirely accurate. Thank God we got all the ancient runes and other historical accounts outside of Christendom to give us a clearer view. Because to get the true gist of the topic, it actually takes a little digging. These pre-Christian European civilizations, other than the big boys, like the Romans, are still pretty enigmatic. And Christianity's main tool was to absorb a lot of the cultures of these people. A dead giveaway is not only all the holidays, but also all the similarities that the Norse myth has with Christianity. <laughs> As I've already said, there seems to be a root similarity with myth from all ancient cultures, and Christianity is no exception. The similarities between Norse mythology and Christianity is undeniable, and Norse mythology even has a very detailed end time similar to the Christian one, though distinct and unique all its own at the same time. And some say that the Norse people were descendants of the Nephilim because of their height. And during those times, indeed, Norse people were far taller than any average person in the rest of the world, with some Viking kings that have been dug up being seven feet tall. These giant kings, who were probably beasts in battle, often boasted of being descended from the giants, or the gods themselves, such as Odin. But then again, what about the Viking gods? Aren't they supposed to be Nephilim too? The giants from Viking lore could just be an earlier generation of Nephilim or even the Watchers. And it's important to remember that from Hebrew lore, the Nephilim spirits were not allowed to leave Earth or pass on and have peace. Which has led to the conclusion of many that the Nephilim are actually demons. They're just the spirits of the Nephilim trapped here. And if we go with the Shade of Ghost translation of the word, then it makes more sense. The giants could be looked at as ancient spirits of dead Nephilim, especially since they exist in an alternate existence to the rest of the Norse mythological universe. The gods themselves were related to the giants by many marriages, and there's Iser who are not originally Iser, they're actually giants, such as Egger, Loki, Mimir, and Skadi. 
but despite their giant heritage, they bear little difference in status to the other gods. The chief god Odin was the great-grandson of the giant Ymir. In fact, the giants were actually the first conscious beings in existence. In Midgard, Earth, or our material plane, itself was created using the body of the giant Ymir. He battled with Odin and came out on the wrong side. And, uh, there's many ancient Viking tales that say the giants had a liking to devouring human flesh, just like in the Hebrew tales of the Nephilim. And, like I said back in the first episode of this series, or possibly the second, there were covenants that were made with the gods of every city, with the people that were in the area. And all of these ancient rulers, these gods making covenants with the people, were the children of the Watchers. And then the Nephilim themselves would have children that would rule, and so on and so forth. With all the similarities to the Hebrew lore, the ancient Vikings definitely knew what was up. Though they, instead of fearing these Nephilim, kind of looked up to them and worshipped them. Which is not universal in myth around the world at all. Though at the same time, not unusual. With the Viking pantheon easily being analogous with Nephilim lore. Though remember too that the term for the Watchers, the Ben Elohim, is often mistranslated. Elohim is plural for the Canaanite pantheon of gods. Most people translate the Watchers as the Sons of God, when the accurate translation for Ben Elohim is actually the Sons of the Gods, which is why these pantheons are so universal across all human culture. But let's take a look at another one of the mainstream famous ancient god pantheons, and one that you're most likely very familiar with, and that pantheon is the Greeks. I don't really think I gotta go over the myth of Prometheus again, and how he brought the flame of civilization to humanity against Zeus's will and whatnot, and then suffered horribly for it. But it's important to remember that the Greek gods were usurpers, and Prometheus was a titan, or basically among the ranks of the original rulers that came before. So he had no love for the Olympians, and pretty much did what the Watchers did in a way, though he did it out of benevolence. Most of all those that Prometheus knew or cared about were locked away in the depths of Tartarus. And with all his loved ones gone, he redirected his, I guess his... I don't really know what I was, where I was going with that. But he switched over his love for his fellow titans that he could no, no longer give affection for and uh, redirected it to humanity, I guess. Because he really grew fond of humanity and wanted to see them prosper. However, Zeus wasn't having any of that. To hurt humans for Prometheus's gift, Zeus sent Pandora who would end up bringing all the woes and hardships that plague humans into the world all the way till this day. Though that's a story for another time. But what about these titans, right? They sound pretty weird. Well, Kronos is by far the most well-known titan and is associated with the energies of Saturn and is basically the god of time. He's the son of Uranus and Gaia 
two primordial gods that are similar to the Mesopotamian Apsu and Tiamat. <laughs> and I mean like really, really similar. But Kronos is basically the pre-Greek god, Zeus ruler of all the gods, or, you know, supernatural beings or whatever, the deities. And much like Zeus, who was the youngest son, Kronos too was the youngest son of the children of Apsu and Tiamat, or, I mean, Uranus and Gaia. And just like Zeus, he was the most powerful among the ranks of the cosmic deities. There is a common theme of the youngest child being the most powerful for some reason across ancient myths across the world. Yet despite similarities to Apsu, Kronos shows more similarities to the Mesopotamian god Anu, which is where the word Anunnaki comes from. Anu too was the highest ranking god, though unlike Kronos, Anu would retain his high status even with the rise of other gods to power such as Enlil and uh, Marduk and Baal. He basically was still revered throughout all Mesopotamian cultures throughout history, whereas Kronos got his balls cut off and thrown in a fiery prison. Anu is the primogenitor to El, the Canaanite god adopted by the Hebrews, though is not to be confused with later association with Yahweh, that's Enlil. Marduk and Baal are also just pretty much Zeus from different cultures. And you just wait because Marduk's going to have a pretty big role to play once we get to Zacharias Sitchin's translations of the Sumerian tablets and his whole story. But looking at the Greek pantheon uh, from the covenant lore found typically in the Near East back in ancient times, the storm god could just be an entirely separate entity of the Anunnaki given reign over the area known as Greece and the surrounding area as well. Pretty up in the air and open to interpretation concerning all this uh, Watcher, Nephilim, and uh, uh, coinciding similar ancient myth, though the trinity in Mesopotamian gods, Anu, Enlil, and Enki, the most powerful one is easily Enlil, at least from a, a human perspective. He's also the wielder of the Tablets of Destiny, which is also in the Babylonian creation myth, with Marduk getting him. The Tablets being, well, when we get to the more sci-fi stuff, the Tablets will be different and pretty cool. But according to this ancient view, the Tablets of Destiny held the fates of both mortals and gods, and whoever wielded them was essentially the master of the universe. So Zeus is either a totally separate Anunnaki offspring child, uh, one of the, the Ben Elohim, I guess, or he's just a later version of the same kind of storm lightning king god. And interestingly enough, if you check the earlier, um, the earlier Hebrew tales, Yahweh is like a storm king god. So everybody really liked to kind of copy paste these themes, which means that there's many, many other analogous gods between these cultures, such as Aphrodite, who's similar to Ishtar or Inanna from Mesopotamian myth. 
but there's many more similarities to be found between Greek gods and Mesopotamian gods. Pluto, aka Hades, is the lord of the underworld in ancient myth and was also one of the sons of the titan Kronos, though he was the least powerful out of the three brothers who would take rulership. And the counterpart for Hades is Nurgle, the god of pestilence and decay, the god of entropy, war, and husband to Ereshkigal, the true ruler of the underworld. Though he was the king, she was the, the first and foremost ruler. She got there first. This myth would change later to give Nurgle a bigger role, but this myth is older than when everything started to become patriarchal. With these ancient times, men and women, uh, goddesses and gods, roughly being pretty equal across the board. In later Babylonian times, Nurgle becomes associated with Mars. And essentially later on past that, the war god Ares. So Hades and Nurgle and Ares all have similarities between each other. Oh, and Inanna. She's another one. A war god. And from Greek and Roman beliefs, Hermes or Mercury or Tehuti or Raphael plenty of names for entities similar to this dude, but Hermes is also associated with Nengazida from Mesopotamia, and uh, Nabu, Enki's son, and could also be the Mesoamerican god Quetzalcoatl. This guy really gets around and seems to have a counterpart in every single pantheon from every culture around the world. And for good reason, I mean, Thoth is awesome. He's easily my favorite out of all of them. Well, other than Themis or Ma'at, who are also analogous to each other, as well as Tame in the later Coptic years. And then the Greek Apollo, similar to Shamash or Utu, who's often depicted with a shining circle behind his head, similar to Ra, and even travels through the sky like Ra. There's some, a lot of uh, contradictions in here, but this is more about attributes rather than lineage or rank. Poseidon, Zeus's brother and uh, second most powerful Olympian god, was given rulership over the sea and very loosely seems similar to Enki from Mesopotamian lore. And as the youngest child of three, I really dig how the youngest child is always the most powerful in these uh, pantheons. And I'm sure that it would really piss off my brother Chris, especially since he hates anything that is not just, uh, you know, completely mainstream. If it isn't on the TV, it, it, he won't believe it. <laughs> so I guarantee he'll never hear that. But uh, unlike uh, Poseidon, Enki is the ruler of all waters, not just the sea. This includes basically all water as you'd think it, from deep within the earth to fresh water to the sea itself. And water is often associated with creation, something that Enki is all about. So there's actually a ton of similarities between Sumerian and Greek gods, or I should say Mesopotamian and Greek gods with the Greek gods seeming to be slightly less powerful, which could mean that they're an offshoot branch of the family of Elohim that is uh, later down the line, a farther 
down the line generation and probably weaker to their forebearers. Or they could just be the same thing, different name. The important thing to take from all this is really just the parallels to the myth between Sumeria and other ancient cultures, specifically the actions of the Greek god Prometheus and the Sumerian god Anki, who's going to be a big deal later. And these parallels between Enki and Prometheus are rebellion against the Supreme God, resultant creation of mankind, resultant imposition of hard toil and sacrifice, repetition of the same roles. The Supreme God commands creation, but does not play part in the actual creation. The roles of craft God, clever God, and the benefactor of mankind are repeated. The same methods of creation used by Enki and Hephaestus, craftsman methods, modeling of figures from clay, and the goddess in each myth having the same role, as well as the rebel deity punished as a result of his activities against the supreme god, ideas of the soul with the rebel deity's punishment, the clever god tricking the supreme god to benefit mankind, the supreme god acting as an enemy of man and seeking to destroy them, the Supreme God strongly criticized, the story showing an antagonistic attitude towards him. He is harsh. His actions are irresponsible and unjustified. The Flood Myth. Exactly the same almost. Ideas of the history of mankind and the origin of races. Very similar. As well as Mesopotamian and Greek gods being practically interchangeable with the same attributes. So as you can see, the Greek myths and Mesopotamian myths are extremely similar. Oh, and this all comes from the book Greek Myths and Mesopotamia by Charles Pinglace, if you were wondering, which is kind of a dry book. I don't really recommend it for just anybody. You have to be pretty into this stuff to enjoy it. And we all need to just really agree that Prometheus is awesome. Thanks, buddy. Hello. My name is Nessie. You might remember me from such places as Loch Ness, because I'm the Loch Ness Monster. Cryptic Chronicles is sponsored by Blueberry. If you're interested in making your own podcast, just go to Blueberry.com or by going to CrypticChronicles.com, click on the sponsor link on the homepage. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you will not only be helping to support the show, but you'll also have the best podcasting host on the market. There's no contracts. And you can cancel any time. You'll have free 24-hour tech support. Syndication with your own RSS feed. As well as a plethora of other goodies that only professional podcasters use. There's no third-party sites to log into. Never leave your own website. You remain in control. All you have to do is produce your podcast write your blog post, and then publish with 29,000 plugins to pick from. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you'll have one month free 
of the best podcast statistics, as well as one month free of the best podcast hosting. So go through our sponsor, Blueberry, today. And if you can, visit Loch Ness, because I am very hungry. Hello, dear listener. Have you ever had a paranormal experience? A spiritual or esoteric experience? Have you ever seen a UFO or something that you could not explain? Have you ever witnessed anomalous activity that defies reality? Have you ever experienced unexplained mysteries of existence? If you have your own cryptic tale and would like to have it shared on the podcast, then call 1-800-757-6049 and leave a message of your experience. If it's what Cryptic Chronicles is all about, then it will be shared on the show. Just make sure you thought about what you will say ahead of time, and give a clear and concise account. Also make sure to leave your name, where you're from, or any information that will assist in making a clear picture to portray to listeners of Cryptic Chronicles. Once again, call 1-800-757-6049. That's 1-800-757-6049. We look forward to hearing from you. I just really eat up all this Greek myth stuff. I love it. But it's time to move on to Mesoamerica. Because there's a lot of giant legends in Mesoamerica. There's tons similar to the Nephilim lore from the Near East. With the pyramids of Mesoamerica being just as wondrous as the ones in Egypt. As well as being perfectly aligned with the Earth's grid and having astronomically mathematic precision. These pyramids are so advanced that in the cases where it, the degradation isn't so bad from time, you actually can't even slide a razor blade between the masonry. And really the math behind it all is impossibly advanced for what we would call the ancients. The city of Teotihuacan in particular is fascinating. At one time it was the largest city in the Western Hemisphere and larger than the Imperial City of Rome at its peak. But the most interesting thing about this city is that when the Aztecs discovered it, it was abandoned with no explanation. It was a ghost town. This advanced city beyond anything they could ever imagine. Just empty. And though it was an Aztec city, the Aztecs did not build it, they found it. No one knows who built it or the civilization that must have thrived there in the past because... All the evidence points towards a thriving, advanced civilization that we just happen to know nothing about. According to tradition, many civilizations founded in Central and South America were from tall humans who came from the sky and would later become gods. Sound familiar? Well, in Mesoamerica, they also have flood myths extremely similar to those in the Near East. The ones we've already covered, but where the Hebrews call them, well, they say that they're dicks. The Mexican tradition does no such thing. And that goes for Central America and South America, because the Mayans are also incredibly important here. All of the South American civilizations are. 
The city of Teotihuacan itself was said to have been made by a race of giants from an earlier world that had already been destroyed. And that's why the name of the city translates to City of the Gods. The people from the skies who were worshipped as gods built it. However, their world was already eradicated in Cataclysm. And this is interesting because according to Aztec mythology, their world was the fifth world to exist. And many, many worlds destroyed before their current one. And this is one of the reasons why I just love mythology from South America and Central America. As a kid, I always had the Mayan calendar on my wall above my bed. And living in California, there's a lot of earthquakes. So that thing hit me in the head a lot of times, falling off the wall and whatnot. But the race that built Teotihuacan were from one of these destroyed worlds. I'm not really going to go into detail about the worlds that came before, though, because that's far too interesting for this series on the Nephilim. I think I want to cover that. Um, I want to cover that separate on its own with a focus on it, you know, later down the line. But what is fascinating about this last world that was destroyed before our current one is that it was destroyed in basically the same way that the rest of the ancient civilizations consider it to have been destroyed, and that's in Flood Cataclysm. My imagination wants to think that the Nephilim at this city were completely destroyed in the Flood, but considering the legends of red-haired people in the area who were giants in the past, that might not be the case. But the pyramids in the area are still just as grand as the ones found in Egypt, the Mayan ones, the ones in China. Were the Nephilim trying to copy their work in Egypt in the Near East? Were there any Nephilim survivors like there were elsewhere? Well, according to legend and Spanish documentation, there were giant beings that lived among the Aztecs. In the book, The Broken Spears, that's supposed to be accurate events from the Spanish invaders, they fought against such beings. One such giant hero is mentioned by name for his courage and valor in the Florentine Codex, the warrior Tzilakatzin. He was a giant badass who was able to take on many Spaniards at once and consistently come out on top. Dominican Fray Diego Duran wrote some of the earliest documentation of the Aztecs. But can we really believe the Spaniards? Gotta remember all the brainwashed politics that were pretty dark going on in those times. Like from a lot of consideration and breaking it down and thinking about it, it's more like the Spanish were the barbarians than the Aztecs. They didn't even bathe. And yeah, the Aztecs did living sacrifices, but very much in moderation and for specific religious rituals. Whereas the Spanish would just burn people at the stake or kill mass amounts of people just because they thought different on a regular basis. So who's the barbarian? Seems more like the only thing the Spanish had over the Aztecs was guns and steel. Anyway, here's a quote from Diego Duran. It cannot be denied that there have been giants in this country. I can affirm this as an eyewitness. For I have met men of monstrous stature here. 
I believe that there are many in Mexico who will remember, as I do, a giant Indian who appeared in a procession of the Feast of Corpus Christi. He appeared dressed in yellow silk, and a halberd at his shoulder and a helmet on his head, and he was all of three feet taller than the others. End quote. In the American Southwest, the Anasazi too have fascinating myths concerning the Americas. The Maya as well in South America, they both give accounts of bizarre astronomical events in the sky that occurred around the same time, or, you know, give or take concerning their two different calendars. But supposedly it's the same time from two different cultures very far away from each other that document these astronomical events. Could they possibly be UFOs that the ancient people just didn't know how to describe? Or the Watchers? Or Nephilim doing crazy godlike stuff? To the Anasazi, the sky people in their myth are similar to the rest of the Nephilim lore found around the world, in that they did not appear like the indigenous people. They were giants are just larger than average people. I'm not talking like huge, huge giants, just like maybe seven, eight feet tall people. And surprisingly, these giant myths are found all throughout the Native American tribes across North America as well. The visitors from the sky made themselves known though, and interacted with all the indigenous people, doing the regular teaching advanced knowledge and giving advanced information and whatnot. In Native American lore, there's actually a lot about giants, and I'm part Native American, so I kind of dig it. According to Paiute oral history, the Siteka are a legendary tribe of red-haired cannibalistic giants, very similar to how they're depicted in some Hebrew lore. But there's many different Native American tribes with legends of giants that were pretty much all killed off, sadly, and we'll never hear. But the ones that remain do have interesting myths concerning giants. Chief Rolling Thunder of the Comanches said the following about giants in America. I quote, They excelled every other nation that was flourished, either before or since, in all manner of cunning handicraft, were brave and warlike, ruling over the land they had wrested from its ancient possessors with a high and haughty hand. Compared with them, the pale faces of the present day were pygmies in both art and arms." End quote. Chief Rolling Thunder said that they were pretty much wiped out by the Great Spirit because they forgot about justice. The Navajo too described their giant legend. I quote, they were a race of white giants endowed with mining technology who dominated the West, enslaved lesser tribes, and had strongholds all throughout the Americas. They were either extinguished or went back to the heavens. End quote. There are so many different tribes with legends concerning giants. I'll stop there for the sake of expediency because there's a lot more I want to go over. But it's safe to say that according to Nephilim lore, they got around and are found everywhere. I find the consistent legend of these giants having red hair being pretty fascinating. 
because that too is a legend about giants that's found in myth all over ancient cultures. And you know, it just never ceases to amaze me just how similar all of this myth is from cultures across the ancient world that supposedly never interacted with one another, like ever. And we, when we get into the Zacharias Sitchin story concerning the Anunnaki, we're going to make our way back to Mesoamerica because it actually has a pretty decent role to play. But for now, let's move on to India and see where we can find Nephilim lore in their mythology. If you ever go to the website or have been a longtime reader, then you know that I've covered the Mahabharata before and like Dwarka and all that. So I actually have a strong interest and fascination with Indian mythology and know a lot about it. And the entities analogous to Nephilim in Hindu mythology are the Deityas, known for their opposition to sacrificing to the Divas while also being their half-siblings. They're the offspring of Ditti and Kashyapa, and during the first age of the cosmos actually made war on the Divas and won, scattering their ranks throughout the universe. And this war in heaven caused a lot of chaos. Though like any good myth, there's many different versions and depictions of these beings and like usual, don't get too caught up in dogma. The Divas could be considered in Indian mythology to be what we would think of as gods in a pantheon. And though they were defeated, they would rally against the Deityas, eventually defeating them. And just like the Watchers, banishing them to the underworld. But the Daitya as giants were similar to the Nephilim myths in that their children were the heroes of renown, at least in the first generations. Different from normal humans by huge growth and unusual force, they were extremely powerful. The imagery behind them depicts them being seven to eight feet tall, but otherwise humanoid, at least for the most part. They possessed supernatural powers and abilities and powerful magic. However, the most bizarre thing concerning the Deityas is that apparently they had flying crafts and intergalactic spacefaring abilities, with them even being described to have flying cities analogous to space stations orbiting planets, at least in their descriptions, in a way translated from a modern technological perspective. But ancient alien theories about Indian culture back in ancient times is nothing new. And from Mesopotamian lore, all of India was under the rule of Inanna, the goddess of war, love, and beauty. And in the later stages of Anunnaki, the, the arch enemy of Marduk. And there's also a lot more I could go over, and I probably will. But like the Nagas, uh, Jain mythology from India also speaks of a time when giants walked the earth. The Naga especially are going to have a lot of uh, importance when I get into the more reptilian nature of these watchers, at least according to certain ancient texts. And then we have Irish mythology, and which actually deserves far more attention than it gets since lots of European myths actually originate there. The Fomorians are giant sea people. Their leader, Baelor, guided them to the shores of Ireland following a great flood. They've been looking for land for some time following the destruction of civilization and the cataclysm. And once they came upon Ireland, 
they found home. And pretty much these legends are the reasons why mountains are considered sacred as a part of European culture down the line. The mountaintops were their salvation. While some scholars locate the Fomorians' point of origin in Spain or North Africa, others claim that the original homeland of these pre-Celtic giants was Atlantis, thought to have been located 200 miles west of Gibraltar. But don't worry, we're gonna get to Atlantis. I got tons dedicated to it. Trust me. In Northern Ireland, there's natural geologic formations called the Giant's Causeway, and they consist of massive columns. With these columns supposedly being the work of giants, and there's also those who say that it is the original inspiration for the mythical pillars of Hercules. So Irish myth is extremely fascinating and actually predates like the majority of myths of the ancient world, at least the European ones. I don't understand why Irish mythology isn't in the headlights like the Greeks or Vikings, because it's just as relevant and ancient or even could have inspired a lot of the other stuff around it. And that isn't even including all their fairy folklore and whatnot, so why aren't they given more credit? They should be way more mainstream, but whatever. History's weird. Anyway, let's move on to the even lesser known Kai of New Guinea. Because they too tell tales of a race of demigods or giants called the Nemu. These giants were said to be bigger and stronger than any mortal and lords of the earth before the great flood. They're credited with teaching the Kai ancestors advanced knowledge concerning everything from agriculture to architecture. Though these giants were killed during the great flood myth of their culture with the few who survived, vanishing, and basically lost all their technology under the waves, having to start over. Their fate pretty unknown. And then of course, there's China, easily one of the most fascinating civilizations to study, especially if you enjoy military history and philosophy, like me. And China is another one of those civilizations that was insanely advanced over any other extremely early on in human history. If they never closed their gates and became like so, uh, what's the word? isolationists, then they would probably be like 200 years more advanced in technology than everyone. It's almost as if they learned a lot from an advanced civilization that came before them. Almost as if. Though, don't get me wrong, I'm not glorifying China. I understand that modern China is pretty messed up. Well, not the Chinese people. The Chinese people are awesome. Their government is messed up and treats their people more like cattle than human beings. I lean kind of towards libertarians, so when I see people who don't have any rights or individual relevance as the individual, it kind of irks me. Yeah, it's wrong. But ancient China, or just past China, not even ancient, is awesome. The Dao De Jing is my 
let's just say that if it came down to it, I would be a Taoist if asked if I had any like religion or anything like that. Though I don't really put titles on myself anymore and haven't for a while. Concerning my spiritual journey, early on I would consider myself maybe a Buddhist until I realized that I fundamentally disagreed with the first noble truth. And then when I found the Tao, I, yeah, that's my jam. And all that comes from China. Anyway, I'm getting lost in the woods again. Back on topic. <clears throat> in the Chinese creation myth, just like the Norse and Celtic myths, a giant was the first living being in existence. It lived in utter darkness and chaos. The boundaries that separated heaven and earth did not yet exist. There was no sun or moon or stars or anything really. And from this internal chaotic matter, the first being came forth. The giant Pengu manifested. This entity became self-aware and found himself trapped in eternal darkness and chaos. Eventually, the giant wanted to prove to himself that he existed, because if there was nothing else, was he really there? So he chose to bring order to chaos and create the universe. He broke through the darkness and fell to the material plane. Then Pangu stood upon the earth for 18,000 years, preventing the sky from crashing to the earth by embracing it with his forehead. Pangu grew weary and laid down and fell asleep, during which time he died, and his body seeded all life on the planet as well as the cosmos. Pangu's head and eyebrows formed the planets and stars. His left eye formed the sun and his right the moon. His flesh formed the soil of the earth and his blood the oceans and rivers. His teeth and his bones formed rocks, minerals, and gems. His breath formed the clouds and the wind while his voice became lightning and thunder. His perspiration formed rain and the dew and the hair on his body formed trees, plants, and flowers, while parasites living on his skin became animals and fish. And then of course a pantheon came forth from the heavens, most likely analogous to Watchers. These deities are actually the primogenitors of the Chinese people, whose ancestors are a giant hybrid race from northern China. So yeah, another awesome ancient legend similar to Nephilim lore. And I could go on. There's also Japanese mythology. The two emperors were giants, the original ones. The fabled dragon emperors from the sea. But we're running out of time, aren't we? Yep. So there you go. I could go on and on and create an entire series probably on similarities to Nephilim across pretty much all ancient civilizations and beyond. And bizarrely, why are Mediterranean deluge and giant myths not restricted to the Mediterranean cultures? How is it possible that so many civilizations that never had any contact with one another, supposedly, share similar mythology across the board? Now, this is a rabbit hole that you could fall into and never crawl your way back out of. I'm serious. I'm in it. I'm in it. <laughs> uh, 
but there's a lot of people that have pretty much gone nuts researching this stuff to the point that they lose their objective analyzation and fall into the confirmation bias trap or even creating their own dogma or translating things in a way that revolves around their already accepted version of reality. A lot of people who research this topic get obsessed with conspiracy theories surrounding the Nephilim and kinda propagate a constant state of paranoia to the world around them. People will believe anything that goes along with what they already accept, to a degree, and will denounce anything they don't understand or seems to go against the grain of their already solidified perceptions. And sadly, such opinions are irrelevant, and this limited way of thinking inhibits the attainment of true knowledge and the ability to research objectively. It's the paradox that belief is the enemy of learning. Now that's not to say that you shouldn't have ideas about stuff, but when you straight believe things and form your own reality around those beliefs, it's very limiting. Much better to just have ideas. Oh, that's my point of view. I'm not trying to preach to you. I think I'm coming off kind of preachy. But it's the mark of an educated mind to entertain ideas and thoughts without accepting them or denying them. So I suggest not taking any of the more conspiratorial aspects of the Nephilim and Watchers seriously. Especially like when we get into the later Anunnaki stuff. Don't get me wrong though, I want you to feel like a little bit of fear or like uh, questioning reality or feel kind of uncomfortable, but not to the point where it becomes unhealthy. Fear is actually good. It's a good thing. It's a positive thing to an extent because it's there for a reason. And when we can face fear or accept things that cause fear, we just grow stronger. It's also there to make sure that you don't get eaten by wild animals. <laughs> so, uh, I'm not a fearmonger and don't want to start anyone on the path to ignorance or unnecessary paranoia. No one knows the true history of humanity, no matter what they say. The only objective truth we have is that there is a sliver of truth in all myth. Dogma is the enemy of knowledge and truth. And in the coming episodes, we're going to start getting into aspects of the lore that if taken too literally or seriously may make some question their own paradigm or even rock the very foundations of their established conscious reality. Let's just say that the human mind has been conditioned to see things in black and white and it has a need to have some sort of control, which is why we label everything and put them in little boxes. But as all philosophers know, this is an incredibly handicapped way to perceive the world. So just relax, because nothing is under control, and the only guarantees in this life are change and chaos.
cut of your jib. Oh, hi. Didn't see you there. I'm just reading some comments from listeners. Anyway, that's all for today's episode. Thanks for listening. Cryptic Chronicles is filmed in front of a live studio audience, and only required sacrifices are ever made to the old gods. So, I guess it's not always a live audience. But the dead are reanimated for our undead army, so none of the corpses go to waste. And no zombies were harmed in the filming of this episode. Though there was a slight disclaimer from our producer and overlord, the great Cthulhu, prophet of the outer gods and greatest among the great old ones. Listening to this episode causes utter madness. You've been warned. Actually, I probably should have put that at the beginning, huh? Oh well, fuck it. Cryptic Chronicles is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, uh, there's other ones, hold on. Oh yeah, Spreaker, but you know what, just anywhere where there is podcasts, we're there. If you can, do Cthulhu a favor, he wants you to give good reviews as much as you can whatever format you're listening to the show on. Y'all been doing really good at that, thank you. But we gotta keep it up. Make sure you follow us on all of our social media, especially Facebook. Come join the Facebook group now, I need you. And then check out YouTube because it's YouTube and there's videos on there and you know, it's awesome and we're there. So go look at it and subscribe and go check out our Patreon. Go to CryptoChronicles.com, at the top, Chronicler's Vault, and at just a dollar a month, just one dollar a month, you can unlock premium episodes. That includes uncensored, whole episodes that aren't really edited down, and uh, they're early, so you get them a week before anyone else. No ads. And also I have secret messages in there that you have to decrypt because this is Cryptic Chronicles and what would I do if something wasn't cryptic, I wouldn't be holding up my end of the bargain. Now would I? So please, go support us on Patreon. You know it's worth it. I mean, plus it'll please Cthulhu, so come on. Come on. Come on. And I'd like to thank my current patrons who are the coolest, bestest, nicest, awesome, prettiest, and handsomest people ever. Paul, Paul the Mighty, Kenny, Kenny is my homie, Angie Allen, yeah, we know each other, Angie, yo, she's basically on a scale of one to 100,000 million, she's like off the charts, pretty swell gal, and of course, Stephanie Wilkie, Leon Watson, Linda Gonzalez, and Megan, Megan's awesome, thanks Megan. She's the most recent patron and probably like a total badass. I'm just assuming though. That's my, uh, that's my instincts. My intuition is telling me. And of course, Mark Lane. Mark Lane, I hope you're listening to this, buddy. Haven't heard from you in a bit. But yeah, there we go. Those are my, my super buddies. We are really good at high fives. But until next time, I'm your host, Tim Hacker. And as the greatest and most intelligent psychoanalyst who ever lived once said the most terrifying thing is to accept oneself completely
Bada bing, bada boom, bada bing, bam, boom.